0: everybody, and thank you for joining us today on Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs, and where we push the limits of our understanding. We are your hosts, Joe Landry and Nori Olford, and in this episode, we're going to get into something a little more down-to-earth, no pun intended. (laughs) Um, But in this case, we mean specific locations where the Anunnaki, that is the ancient alien astronauts, that is the gods, may have descended upon the Earth and then ascended back up into space, or as some might say, up into the heavens. These locations would uh, quite simply be nothing other than spaceports from long ago. Hi there, Lori. How you doing?
1: Pretty good, Joe. And yourself? I'm doing well. So whenever I think of the word spaceports, I'm always reminded of the Moss Isley spaceport in Star Wars.
0: <laughs> of course, of course. We know exactly what scene you're talking about. <laughs> It's uh, very memorable from the movie with Luke Skywalker, Obi Wan Kenobi, C three PO, and R two D two standing upon that clifftop and looking out upon the expanse of the desert on Tatooine, and out there is the city of Mos Eisley. (laughs) Yep,
1: Uh, you'll never find a more richard hive of scum and villainy, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Obi Wan Kenobi clearly had a dislike for the place.
0: Well, the topic for today is actually the namesake of your book, Let Us Descend. And I know you, among others, have pointed out certain spots on the globe that stick out as strange places. They are places that have megaliths that are not only extremely old, but whose construction is not completely understood even now in modern times. So you and I are very familiar with the works of Zachariah Sitchin and Eric von Daniken where, of course, we find uh, plausible explanations for these structures as being built uh, either by extraterrestrials themselves or by humans who built them to venerate something that extraterrestrial. But what about them makes us think these sacred sites were associated uh, with ancient spaceports? Why would they not serve other purposes, like merely being temples and monuments, which is what they really are?
1: Yeah, so they are just that. Temples where people would go to worship deities or monuments to commemorate kings and demigods. Uh, But our ancestors built them there because something had been happening in those places. Uh, Moss Eisley is obviously a fictional spaceport where pilots come and go, where they meet passengers, conduct business, and fuel and repair their ships. But a spaceport is something that would really be much like an airport. Um, It would serve the same purpose. The only difference is that the pilots and cargo are traversing points in outer space, not points on the Earth via the sky. Um, As it is right now in our modern time, spaceports don't function quite like that since there is no commercialized travel in outer space, uh, at least not yet, Um, perhaps one day not far in the future. Uh, the spaceports of today are launch sites for rockets, most notably in uh, Cape Canaveral, Florida, and White Sands, New Mexico, and wherever those places are that the Russians and Chinese use. Yeah,
0: right, and they're not like airports that have thousands of passengers departing and arriving every day with luggage check-in and with hundreds of air carriers and with concourses that have you know restaurants and duty-free shops. Uh, a spaceport like that only exists in science fiction, at least for now, like you said. So how could something like that have existed in, say, prehistoric times?
1: Well, looking at some of these structures, it's uh, not easy to simply attribute them to human ingenuity. Uh, It is definitely possible, but it raises some questions. So let's look at the Egyptian pyramids of Giza. There's a lot of mystery surrounding them, right? Um, How were they built? Why were they built? Who actually built them? In mainstream archaeology, the theory is that they were tombs of the Old Kingdom, pharaohs, Khufu, Chifra, and Menkaure, and that they were constructed by the Egyptians to honor their greatness. But there are a couple of problems with that. Uh, one is that there is no actual mention anywhere of these pharaohs being laid to rest there. Uh, they are basically cenotaphs that um, commemorate their deaths. The chambers inside were always said to have been empty, even in the second millennium B.C. So the second problem is that we find an inscription in a stela recovered from the ruins of the Temple of Isis that indicates that the Great Pyramid, as well as the Sphinx, was already standing during the time of Khufu, who preceded Chifra and Menkaure. So based on that, someone else built the pyramids, possibly long before the Old Kingdom. If the Egyptians of Khufu's time didn't build them, then who did?
0: If, if that were true, uh, of course, then the pyramids could be considerably older than what is estimated by archaeologists. archaeologist, to which the accepted date of construction is approximately 2600 B.C., at least the, the Great Pyramid of Khufu, that is, as that was the one by which all the others were based. Uh, and most scholars agree that that was sort of the prototype one. All the other pyramids throughout the land, like the Pyramid of Djoser, uh, seem less than perfect than the Great Pyramid, which is sort of like, I guess you call it the quintessential pyramid.
1: Mm. Now, Sitchin put forth a different notion as to why the pyramids were built, and indeed, it could have been long before the First Dynasty of Egypt. Uh, their purpose was to serve as a navigational aid, as a landmark, or even as a signal beacon for instrument landing. He hypothesized that there was a flight path that the Anunnaki used to land their spacecraft in a designated zone, which was the Sinai Peninsula. Um, That could mean that they were not built by humans or, in the very least, not even conceived in the minds of humans.
0: It's interesting that the Sinai would be thought of as a so-called spaceport of the alien astronauts, as this is thought to be the territory where the Hebrew migration took place where the Bible says the Israelites wandered for 40 years before entering the promised lands. It's also thought to be where Moses is said to have encountered the burning bush. And if you recall from Exodus three, four through six, Yahweh tells Moses to remove his sandals because he is standing on holy ground. So you have to wonder why that is. Why is this such a special place to be called holy ground? I mean, I've always wondered what was so holy about it. It's just wilderness. Um, we don't know for sure exactly where this is supposed to have happened. Uh, the scriptures imply that the Ten Commandments were given to Moses in the same place. Uh, that is a mountain called Horab, called the Mountain of God. And most ins- h- historians believe that this uh, was traditionally identified as Mount Sinai, which is geographically in the southern area of the barren desert of the Sinai Peninsula. Likewise, the pyramid texts of ancient Egypt tell of the Sinai as the destination of the Pharaoh's journeys to the afterlife. So the whole land had a spiritual significance in that it represented a direct connection with the gods. Now, in the case of the Israelites, it was where Yahweh physically dwelt. If the gods were extraterrestrials, and if the Sinai was where they would descend from the sky and then ascend back up, then people would have cognitively signified it as the connection, that is the bond, between heaven and earth.
1: Right. And by examining this flight path that uh, Sitchin suggested, we see it lines up the pyramids with the Sinai, but also lines perfectly with a prominent uh, topographical feature in the Middle East, that being Mount Ararat to the northeast in what is now Turkey. It's difficult to conceive how this alignment would have been coordinated by ancient Egyptians, though, as it seems it would have had to have been viewed from high above to get the proper orientation. Mount Ararat is too far away from Giza and Sinai to be visible. It's uh, too far below the horizon to see. So they couldn't just line it up by sight. It would have had to have been done so through tedious mathematical calculations. Of course, you also have to wonder why such an alignment would be important to them anyway.
0: Right. And it would have been difficult for them to do that unless they had very accurate geodetic information like how we do today. As far as we know, they didn't have that kind of knowledge about Earth's measurements and spherical dimensions. Uh, We commented in an earlier episode on the literary annotations about the model of the Earth that they had back then, and we see that it was far from being correct. So we're not sure what people really understood about the planet back then, but it doesn't seem like it was very much, uh, unless perhaps someone imparted true, accurate, and reliable information to them. Could the Anunnaki have taught our ancestors something like geophysics and trigonometry so that they could uh, acquire a better comprehension of what the earth really was?
1: We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss,
0: unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell.
1: Could have been. Now, these aren't the only points in the region that are lined up this way. Uh, Sitchin thought that another flight path took the Anunnaki to a different spaceport. This one was in Sapar in Mesopotamia. Here, the alignment also uses Mount Ararat as a reference point, along with Eridu near the coastline of the Persian Gulf. And there were many cities in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley that would have served as landmarks, and many also have been equipped with some kind of signal beacons, such as at Nippur and Larza. Now, if you look at a map of the Middle East, you recognize a sort of triangulation of points with a corridor going up from Giza across Jerusalem and Palestine and the Orantis, River in uh, Syria, all the way to Mount Ararat. There is a similar corridor that encompasses points from Mount Ararat, all the way down through Mesopotamia to the Persian Gulf.
0: Yeah, these are a lot like uh, air traffic corridors, if you will. And it is at points within them that we have most of our biblical stories of divine encounters. So there are, you know, Sinai and Horab, uh, Jerusalem and Mount Moriah and the Jewish Temple, uh, Baalbek and the Temple of Jupiter, and Babylon and Nineveh with the Ziggurat temples of Marduk. Uh, but there's also Mount Hermon, uh, a significant place. That's the a, a place w- upon which the watchers descended. Um, and that is also within this line of points. In the Arabian Desert, you have Mecca and Medina uh, and the, the Hajj. Uh, that is along the Red Sea where Muhammad spent his life and had his contact with the Abel Jabril. Um, this is where the Blackstone and the Kaaba, the Muslims, are found. That area, too, is very close to these corridors. And we can almost look at this, and you might call it the Bible Triangle, as this covers places that are religious settings that seem to take place within Judeo-Christianity and Islam. I mean, it can even extend over into India with another corridor going from Mount Ararat all the way to and Daro, with places throughout Iran in between, like Susa, uh, persepolis Equatana as well as Mount Dana, which is the highest summit in the Zagros mountain range. Again, these would be visual reference points for a spaceship flight path. And these places, uh, even to this day, are still called Holy Lands. And it could be because this was once a hub of operational activity for the Anunnaki aliens. If they were to frequently come and go in this region, humans would have uh, been very likely to have had direct encounters with them. And thus begin the foundation of the mythical or oral traditions that we have. And indeed, we find that, that these certain spots, like Mount Ararat and the Sinai and, and many others, uh, seem to historically have been spiritual and uh, have had spiritual and divine presences associated with them. It goes back to that psychological theory of stimulus behavior, like how we discussed um, last week about the descriptions of dragons and monsters as being ways that people form mental schemata, words that people do understand are used to explain phenomena that they do not understand.
1: I agree. Um, Of course, there are other parts of the globe that are like hotspots of spiritual and divine importance. And that could be because they are hotspots of extraterrestrial importance. Uh, In Mexico, there are the Mayan pyramids in Teotihuacan that are very similar to the ones in Giza, yet, Um, They do have some differences, though. The Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico at Teotihuacan is 730 feet long on the base of each side, while the Great Pyramid uh, is 755 feet on each side. So they're pretty close in terms of the area of their bases. Now, Teotihuacan is what I think can provide some of the best clues to an ancient astronaut presence on Earth. Uh, We still don't know exactly who built the pyramids there. As as the Mayan legend as the Mayan legend tells of the gods constructing them, uh, shamans, priests, and kings were said to routinely go there to meet with the gods. The Teotihuacan is actually translated as the place of the gods, or rather, the uh, where the gods were created. Just by looking at it, especially along the path known as the Avenue of the Dead, we see that there are smaller platform type pyramids, which I believe were actual landing platforms for smaller craft of the gods. Um, Like in the Middle East, this region in Mesoamerica is also known for stories of divine encounters. And we can kind of pick out points that seem to set up what could be considered as flight paths. The Pyramid of Cococon on the uh, Yucatan Peninsula, for example, is a straight shot south across Guatemala to Colombia, where the Quimbaya were discovered. The Quimbaya artifacts are several dozen golden objects found in Colombia, made by the Quimbaya civilization, uh, dating to around 1000 AD. Uh, there are about 500, and, I'm, I'm not actually sure on the uh, total number, uh, that were found in the 1880s after looting had taken place at some excavation sites in uh, uh, Cauca. Now, some of them resemble modern airplanes and are therefore claimed to be out-of-place artifacts. They don't even look bird-like at all. Uh, they look very aeronautical and mechanical. Now, I went ahead and posted an article of it uh, on our Facebook page so you can all see it and uh, know, what, know what we're talking about. Um, so in the first season of Ancient Aliens on the History Channel, if, you, if, you, if uh, our listeners have been listening to that, or oh, sorry, watching that show, um, they showed uh, back in 1994. I think it was the first one of the first in the first season. Uh, there were two German engineers, Peter Bilting and Conrad Lubbers, were able to put together a simplified radio-controlled model of one of these objects and showed, you know, minus some of the awkwardly shaped uh, features on it. The design actually flew. Um, so could it be that the pre-Columbian people of the South South America witnessed something just like that flying around and then um, they made miniature models of them and maybe they created these things to replicate what the uh, Quetzalcoatl and others flew in. Right.
0: Yeah, that, that's very intriguing. Uh, you know, and another interesting thing about that straight line going south that you're talking about, uh, it also goes into Peru and Bolivia, which is the land of the Inca. Uh, this was a large and thriving empire in South America with origins that go back to about 300 AD. They were centered on uh, Tiwanaku, on Lake Titicaca, which, based on their mythology, was from where the creator god, Veracocha, came from the sky and who brought forth the four brothers and four sisters to roam the lands and, and take civilization to their primitive peoples. Now, in his 1968 book, Chariots of the Gods. Eric Von Daniken describes some oddities in this part of the world, namely the temple at Pumapunco in Bolivia, which uh, which has sophisticated architecture. Its construction is so precise that the blocks of stone fit together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, just, they fit so tightly uh, against one another that the gaps are thinner than sheets of paper. And this is a level of engineering expertise that is difficult to mimic even with today's machine-cutting tools, uh, some of which are even computer-controlled. Then there are also the Nazca lines to the west in Peru, which are geoglyphs, so large that uh, they cover hundreds of square miles. And there are about 70 of them, more or less. Um, And they each measure about a kilometer in length on average. And they're roughly about 2,000 years old. And their design patterns are so intricate and proportionate Uh, even on such a humongous scale, uh, and they they still accurately depict uh, geometric uh, and zoomorphic shapes like a monkey, a dog, and even a human. They are also so perfectly scaled in proportion with one another as if they were sketched out on a piece of paper and then enlarged like, say, a million times.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And Experts agree that this would be a very difficult task to undertake since the images cannot be seen in their totality on the ground. Uh, You have to be airborne to observe these geoglyphs in their entirety. So this raises the question of who was supposed to be able to see them (laughs) back, uh, say, around 300 AD. So as far as we know, no one was able to fly back then to be able to see them from the air. And on the ground, they really don't look like much at all. Uh, Even though Spanish explorers discovered them back in the 16th century, they were really just thought to be roads at the time. So some of the uh, zoomorphic images could be discerned from the nearby hills, but it wasn't until the 1930s when airplanes were flown over the Nazca Desert um, that these geoglyphs could be seen for what they are. And the same is true for when they flew over the Egyptian pyramids and noticed that they are aligned with Orion's belt. Now, we see that the Mayan pyramids, say like the Pyramid of the Sun, have step-shaped configurations and have flat tops with doorways at the bottom, and a passage leads from there to the top. Now, these make me think of how helipads uh, are set up upon buildings so that helicopters can take off and land safely above a congested city, with a lot of people moving around. Now, could the tops of these pyramids have been used for the same purpose? Instead of the ship landing on the ground where flocks of pesky people (laughs) could gather around and encroach on it, a uh, place could be put on top of the temple where only a select few, like the priests, could go and make contact with the gods, which none other than the alien spacecraft crew. After all, that is the exact purpose of a temple, right? A a place to meet with the gods. So the craft lands on top of the pyramid. The crew exits and walks out to the edge of the platform to stand along with the priests for all to see from below. Um, It would be much like how Moses was seen on Mount Sinai meeting with Yahweh after he descended in a so-called cloud producing smoke and fire. And where he is said to stand on top of a sapphire pavement type platform.
0: Yeah, and and some of the designs on these monuments are actually quite elaborate. Uh, You really have Mm -hmm. to wonder how they could have been made, uh, say, like with the Nazca lines. People weren't able to see them from high above to observe what they were doing and and what adjustments uh, may have been needed. Uh, I mean, the skill of artisanship and the craftsmanship of the ancients is something that I I have always found to be truly remarkable. Uh, In one of the Ancient Aliens episodes on the History Channel, I'm not sure which one, uh, but Eric von Danegan got to fly in a plane over the Nazca desert to look at all the zoomorphic geoglyphs. And I think Giorgio Tsoukalos was with them, but I can't remember um, for sure. I do remember seeing that the image of the hummingbird and the spider uh, and how everything was done in the correct proportionality of shapes and sizes uh, with a real attention to detail. Uh, these weren't done in a sloppy way at all. So how were they able to accomplish these kinds of projects is still very much unknown. Um, But we find what seems to be another corridor between all these locations, the locations of the pyramids in central Mexico and the Yucatan Peninsula and the distinctly visible Andes Mountains of South America. In between, there are are points on the globe where, just as in the Middle East, people make claims to there being spiritual presences uh, or divine intercessions. The gods were believed to be present and to have been seen in these regions to come down to Earth and go back up to heaven, go back up to the heavens. So, again, we have a meshing here of theology and geography. The so-called flight paths of the ancient alien astronaut ships would have taken them to landing zones or spaceports within those corridors. And it is from these places that we have many of the stories of people encountering them, uh, that being the gods. And really, when you think about it, it is from these corridors that our religions uh, actually have originated. Yep. So how these people obtained such incredible skill is uncertain. But it appears it may have been given to them by a race of beings who were far more technologically developed. It is this passing of advanced scientific knowledge onto them that they would have called divine revelation. And we do see, and see, we indeed see that in, in all of their literature and mythologies.
1: Yeah, we sure do. Um, And you pointed out that these corridors line up uh, a lot of sacred sites around the world, which uh, lends credence to the idea of there being traffic of the gods. If there were flight paths to spaceports, um, I mean, why not, right? Um, We have stories of them flying. Uh, Quetzalcoatl was called a feathered serpent, and he definitely is said to have flown. Uh, Could he have used the landmarks of Nazca and uh, Tenochtitlan and uh, uh, Teotihuacan as visual reference points when flying from space down to earth. Uh, Veraculture of the Inca could also have used Nazca and Machu Picu and Pumapuku in the same manner. Um, now we also see this in Greece with Mount Olympus, which is a sacred place for, God, for, for the uh, Greeks and Romans. And it was believed to be a bond between heaven and earth, like Mount Sinai and Lake Titicaca. Um, It is the mountain on which Zeus slash Jupiter resided with his family of gods, the 12 Olympians. It is located roughly 60 miles southwest of the city of uh, Thessaloniki. And it means the Illuminous One, which some believe to be a reference to Zeus. But then there are others who think that it may also be because of the snowfall that covers it throughout a, a good part of the year. Um, but this would make it a good visual reference point from a high altitude. And it could be that even Mount Ararat, which is about a thousand miles to the east of it, formed another corridor that served as a flight path for alien ships, which is probably one of the reasons why the Egyptian pyramids were covered in smooth limestone. So it could be seen from miles away.
0: And indeed it can, uh, it can see mm-hmm. it from very far away and from very high altitude. Uh, and, you know, the, uh, the distance is between Mount Ararat and Mount Olympus uh, seems to be roughly the same as the distance between Mount Ararat and Giza and Mount Ararat and the Persian Gulf. And that's roughly the same distance between Mount Olympus and Giza across the Mediterranean Sea and the island of Crete. So here again, we get this sort of triangulation of points uh, where there are clusters of places that hold r- religious and mythological significance. You know, along the Aegean coast, there are temples to Isis, Sybil, Athena, and there are shrines to the Virgin Mary. And they're all in or around the city of Ephesus on the uh, western coast of what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, The island of Patmos, where John the Evangelist uh, said to have had his apocalyptic visions that comprise the book of Revelation. That's in this uh, area as, as well, also within this corridor. And you also have the lost city of Troy from uh, the Greek epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey. They too are all found in this corridor. So if extraterrestrials were on flight paths through here, we might expect to find the manifestation of spiritual and mythical beliefs from them being encountered there. And indeed, that is exactly what we find. So the question that comes to my mind is if these places like Baalbek, Sippar, the Yucatan, uh, the Sinai, or, or landing and takeoff zones, and if there were mission control centers in in places like Eridu and Jerusalem, then why don't we find more hardware? What happened to all the high tech contraptions that would have been left there? Um, was it all taken away, or is it still buried, waiting to be uncovered? You know, if an archaeologist a thousand years from now were to excavate Cape Canaveral, they wouldn't come across stone monoliths and statues. They would find large gantries and steel beams. They would dig up reinforced concrete structures and mechanized remains of vehicles and load movers. Um, There would also be a lot of cable, a lot of electrical cable and pipeline. and large buildings with dilapidated computer systems, uh, arrays of uh, communication antennas, electrical generators and motors, fuel tanks and engines, air compressors, telephone equipment, and all the supply warehouses containing parts for maintenance and repairs. So where is all their technological junk? If we as, modern and, as a modern and advanced civilization have accumulated all these sophisticated pieces of machinery and hardware, why don't we find the same with an extraterrestrial civilization that was surely more advanced than we are at this point in time? Why haven't we unearthed some kind of alien contraption, say, like in the Sinai Desert, like an alien spacecraft?
1: That is a good question, Joe. Um, Why don't we find high-tech stuff like that? Normally, when a military unit leaves the occupation of a country, they should take most of their equipment and gear with them, certainly the most important and valuable stuff. Now, Did the Anunnaki do this? We don't know. Um, They may have, because if they were described as being able to remove large quantities of gold on freighter ships from this planet, then I'm sure removing other items wasn't a big issue. Um, But some of it may also have been destroyed or, like you said, buried by the flood and is yet to be discovered in ancient mud or desert sands. Um, Then again, what if many of these ancient technological marvels were already on Earth, but they were confiscated by the government so as to hide the lost knowledge from the public? Perhaps some of the flight technology and other gadgets we have today are of ancient extraterrestrial origins. And we'll never find out about it because of top-secret classification policies. Um, If it's on a need-to-know basis, and we, the public, we don't have a need-to-know, right?
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, The U.S. military is very adept at logistics. Uh, A lot of uh, what is called material, and that is supplies and equipment, uh, can be moved into an area and out of an area pretty quickly. And there are many islands, you know, in the South Pacific where the, the U.S. Navy set up stations and air bases during World War II. And at the time, there were all kinds of operations going on with combat sorties and aircraft maintenance. Uh, there were runways, munitions, depots, shipping docks, heavy equipment, military cars, and, of course, various facilities. Uh, if you go to some of those places today, you don't find much at all that's still there, except for maybe the remains of an airstrip in some empty concrete buildings and bunkers. Almost everything was removed and disposed of long ago. Anything that wasn't, you know, it wasn't taken away, it just sort of rots away with time. Um, so if we see that happening with our own hardware just within the last 70 to 80 years, it's not hard to conceive that uh, any extraterrestrial junk from thousands or tens of thousands of years ago would be swallowed up by the erosion and dilapidation of the centuries.
1: At this point, actually brings to mind the uh, cargo cult of the island of uh, Wanatu, which is in, um, uh, w- where is that, Malaysia or something like that, or Melanesia? Melanesia. In yeah, South. Melanesia in, South, in the South Pacific. Um, so here we can observe the actual birth of the uh, meaning of a divine encounter. So during World War II, the inhabitants of that island, um, who uh, until that time, they had never seen uh, anyone from another place. Uh, they came into contact with American servicemen, and it said that there were a lot of troops, supplies, and battlefield material uh, being brought onto the island and that this was very intrusive to the lifestyles of the people. Now, however, the American GIs also helped them by giving them food, give them uh, giving them medicine and various commodities, and also introduced them to what would have been considered advanced technology, such as automobiles radios, cameras, electric flashlights, and firearms, and, of course, airplanes.
0: Yeah, you know, what's kind of bizarre about this uh, this case here is these islanders eventually formed their own religion from those experiences, and depict picked the servicemen as being like divine beings who they collectively identify with a more, I guess you call it a transcendent entity, they call John Frum. Now, John Frum is uh, not the name of an actual... person he's not one of the guys Uh, instead it's a name that has come to sort of embody the entire essence of all the servicemen who came and left after making their lives better on the island and that's how they see it And Mm -hmm. so it is it's a fabricated name of something that is not real but is associated with the story of their interaction with guys who were real so to the islanders this was seen as a spiritual encounter because of the deep impact that was made upon their lives the military hardware and any of the accoutrements of the GIs that were left behind, they are treated as relics and shrines, and they pretty much worship uh, the ground upon which they once had walked. Uh, this, I would say, demonstrates the entire theoretical framework of ancient astronauts, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, that's,
1: uh, very, that's very interesting. And um, it's also a very noteworthy case to be studied, uh, as that directly illustrates almost everything that we've been talking about on this podcast. And and we can find other examples of how an isolated and primitive society came to believe that upon seeing the arrival of visitors, that it was thought of as the coming of the gods. But this would be especially true if those arriving visitors possessed superior technology, and as such would leave the people in a state of amazement. A famous example of this was when the Aztecs met Cortez and the conquistadors for the first time. So now, going back to the spaceports, Um, Let's look at the very first one set up by the Anunnaki. It was most likely in the Sumerian city of Sippar. And remember, we're talking way before the flood, more than 13,000 years ago. So any of the high-tech remains would have been taken away or deeply buried or washed away long, long ago. Uh, Now, Session translated this to as uh, where Shamash rises. And it was also referred to as the city in charge of the chief of the eagles. From here, they traversed to the southern hemisphere, the abyss in South Africa, to the gold mines. Um, they also traveled to destinations all over the earth to include Central and South America. This is where the Sumerian god Ningazida became known as Quetzalcoatl and Cococon and Veracocha, um, the feathered serpent, and the shining one. And they were shining one... Uh, uh, was it earlier we talked about how Zeus is referred to as being the, the illuminated one? Uh, and then the Gesita, or Nengesita rather, also became known to the Greeks as Hermes, son of Zeus, a.k.a. Marduk, and to the Egyptians as Thoth, son of Ra, a.k.a. Marduk, son of Inki, a.k.a. Ptah, son of Anu, a.k.a. Cronos. Um, now, he could also have been a descendant of Enlil, who's uh, Inki's half-brother, and both sons of Anu. Uh, but in those known as the storm, the storm god. So this apostasis fits with all of the syncretism that we find amongst all of these different cultures. Now, strange objects were said to have been hidden in what was called the sacred precinct. And these objects seem to be shown in the glyphs as looking like multi-stage rockets. Um, there was also a communication and control center, a mission control center, which kept the bond between heaven and earth. So in other words, it kept track of the planetary orbits, along with the flight paths of Anunnaki spacecraft coming and going. So according to Sitchin, this mission control center was uh, in, um, in Eridu. It was said to be upon a raised platform in the middle of the city. It was called the home in the Faraway. Um, This was before the flood in 11,000 BC. After that, it was relocated on Mount Moriah, and the spaceport was moved to the Sinai. Now, notice what the place of the rockets was called, the Sacred Precinct. And it was sacred because objects that were literally out of this world were stored there, such as booster engines, spacecraft, and missiles. The ancient humans would have misunderstood these as relics with supernatural powers, and hence, became tied to the worship of the gods. So the places where they were kept would then be holy and sacred ground. uh, Because there, that's where the gods ascended and descended, forming the bond to heaven and earth. As time went on, temples would be built to venerate these sites and they would thus become, like you said earlier, holy ground.
0: Also, humans would have been forbidden to go to these areas where such things were kept. Uh, the Anunnaki would have treated it like a restricted area, and it would have taken measures to repel people from these places. Uh, there would also have been significant logistics taking place to keep up uh, with these spaceports, which could have affected human activity, and there could very well have been hazardous materials involved, uh, some of which may have caused disasters, even if they were, you know, say, unintentional. And this notion could very well be integrated in some of the ancient myths uh, through tales of plagues and famine, of which we do indeed find plenty.
1: Yep. And there is yet another sacred precinct in the ruins of Tambo, Peru, called the Sacred Valley. Now, this place has what appears to be huge steps that seem to be built for or by giants. Uh, It baffles me that people claim that these steps are nothing more than agricultural terraces, Um, but then they completely rush off, you know, biblical version of uh, giants as as fictional. Um, The structure clearly appears to be giant steps to me. uh, It makes no sense for these to be agricultural terraces due to how tiny the humans appear next to them. Uh, That would be very difficult to obtain vegetation products, uh, from, or, or even upkeep for that matter, it may very well be agriculture terraces, but when you look at the photos of other terraces that don't seem, they just don't seem to be as detailed, mm-hmm. um, and not as high and, and it's, it just doesn't seem to compare. Now I'm going to say it was most likely another spaceport like Machu, uh, Machu Picchu, uh, and Teotihuacan But these places are held in high regard as religious centers because, once again, it's the place where the gods have ascended and descended. So uh, the appearance of extraterrestrial traffic, for lack of a better word, (laughs) brings up another facet of um, uh, ancient myth. And and that is the Nephilim, the giant offspring of the watchers who, according to the books of Genesis and Enoch, had once inhabited the earth. Now, if there is any truth to that. Uh, could they have had something to do with the mysterious movement of large stones uh, like those in Belbec? Uh, it's in modern-day Lebanon, and there are the, uh, these blocks are limestone rock weighing about 600,000 pounds each. Um, on the tallest wall, there's another set of monoliths containing a row of three stones, each over 62 feet long, 14 feet high, and 12 feet wide. They weigh 1.7 million pounds each. I mean, holy crap.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Uh,
1: It it is amazing. Um, Now, an even larger stone lies nearby uh, that's unused, and its weight is believed to be somewhere around 2.2 million pounds. Just absolutely insane. Uh, But wait, (laughs) there's more. (laughs) A fifth stone was located and weighed approximately 2.6 million pounds. I mean, that's equal to 1,300 tons. Um, and these things were massive. Uh, there's even a photograph of a man standing next to one of them, and he looks like a like a small smudge, a little smidgen.
0: <laughs> yeah, like a little like a little fly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. They're right. The the stone blocks you're talking about are the bases of the Temple of Jupiter and the Temple of Bacchus and they were supposedly already in place at the time of the Roman construction. And the one that you say you've seen in a photograph that makes a man look like a smudge, I believe that is called the Stone of the Pregnant Woman. Yeah. Those are incredibly huge, I mean, un- un- uh, conceivably huge monoliths, and, and moving them from one place to another would be like trying to move a fully loaded rail- railroad uh, boxcar across the ground, or like a, a, a railroad uh, engine, a train engine is trying to move a train engine, just push it across the ground.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. just very, very heavy. And the size of those things is just unbelievable. And yeah, and once again, they were built for temples. So, I mean, <laughs> my, my question is, how and why were these things, uh, these stones cut and moved? I think that these were cut so large to be able to withstand the weight of, say, descending spacecraft. Um, I mean, what other purpose could these gigantic stones have served? Um, How could humans have cut these things to such smooth precision? why were they cut so large? You know, um, I think my uh, what I think is they they didn't. But if giants roamed the earth during that time, um, then there's the answer. And this leads us into our discussion for for the next episode, the alien giants of the past.
0: Yes, that will conclude our show for today. And uh, we want to thank all of you for listening in. And hopefully you found this topic to be enlightening and thought-provoking as we come to realize that the things we know about are not always as simple and as cut and dry as we might want to believe. It's sometimes hard to say for sure what took place here on Earth in the distant past. The archaeological evidence and the literary evidence often don't paint a very definitive picture of history, which is why we have more than one side when it comes to beliefs about the reality of our universe and that's uh how we are left with the development of so many religions but the world has a lot of mystery to it and our next episode will further extend some of that mystery as we discuss in nephilim the giants we hear about in the bible so be fi fo fum yeah uh, giants from space <laughs> well no no not exactly from space but possibly from hybrid hybridized the offspring of human women and Anunnaki gentlemen or something like that. <laughs> gentlemen. Yeah. Yep.
1: Uh, our mysterious history may contain giant humanoid creatures that were birthed from the sons of God and the daughters of men. Maybe um, that will be in two weeks on September 12th. Uh, we won't be doing a show on the 5th uh, because of Labor Day weekend. Um, and for all of you that have been following us up to this point, Normally around a, uh, an holiday, Joe and I will, will not do a podcast. <laughs> uh, we usually spend that with our families. Our wives are uh, expecting us to participate in a they bunch say, of family.
0: Yeah. They expect us to be part of the family ordeal. <laughs>
1: yep. Yep. Uh, be part of that family activity. Um, but please stay with us on, uh, Facebook. Keep checking in from time to time and Instagram. And, uh, we want to thank you, um, to those of you who have given us your comments already, and uh, we always appreciate it. We're always looking for it.
0: And of course, Labor Day here in the United States is considered to be like a quasi official end to the summer season. Uh, you know, it's hard to believe summer is almost over. Yeah,
1: you know, well, it's it's not the end of summer for Arizona, Joe. Uh, you know that. The summer here doesn't end till like, what, Halloween?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true that is. Uh, Probably later. (laughs) Yeah, it's still going to be pretty hot here for a while. So happy Labor Day. Uh, Lori and I hope that it's safe and fun for all of you. And we'll be back in two weeks. Until then, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. So long, folks.
1: Bye, everyone. Thanks again for joining us once again uh, in a very riveting discussion. And have a safe and happy uh, Labor Day.